I'm Eric. And I'm Rob. Together, we host the Pulpit Fiction Podcast, the lectionary podcast for those who looked up Ezekiel 2517 and were sorely disappointed. Every week, we dig into four lectionary Bible passages. We'll feed your spirit, engage your mind, and kickstart your creative analysis, and hopefully get a laugh or two along the way. So if you like Art of the Sermon, check us out on the web at pulpitfiction.com or search Pulpit Fiction wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Adam Hamilton, the founding and senior pastor of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, a multi-campus church whose main campus is located in Leawood, Kansas. It also happens to be the largest United Methodist Church in the world. Now, Adam is an all-around communicator, being an author, a preacher, and a traveling speaker, and so he's with us today to share what he's learned over the course of his preaching career. Well, our guest today is Reverend Adam Hamilton. He's the founding and senior pastor at the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. I believe it holds the honor of being the largest United Methodist Church in the world. And so let us welcome Pastor Adam. How are you today? Hey, Dan, I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be on your program. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for taking the time. We like to begin by asking all of our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves as well as their ministry and its context. Sure. Uh, Well, I started Church of the Resurrection 27 years ago uh, with four people in a dream. So the four of us were my wife and I. I was 25 and she was 26, and our daughters were three years old and two weeks old. And my dream was to start a church for thinking people who were non-religious and nominally religious and to try to find a way to connect with them, help them see. I wanted to speak to their intellect first and help them see that you could be a smart person and a person with big questions and also a person of faith. Hope to drive that down to their hearts and have their hearts strangely warmed and changed by the gospel, and then to call them to live out their faith with their hands in the world. And and so we started with the four of us, and it's just been a great adventure ever since. We've had a really wonderful ministry, a lot of fun, and uh, just a great adventure. That's awesome. And, and you've touched on some of this in your previous answer, but what are some of your philosophies or approaches to preaching in general? Or maybe if you had a mission statement for yourself when it comes to preaching, what might yeah. it be? Sure. Well, one of the things I think is important is for any preacher to figure out first, what's the mission of the church that they're serving or the purpose of the church? And a lot of churches don't have a clear, succinct mission or purpose statement. Uh, In the United Methodist Church, our, uh, our, our denominational statement is that, you know, we exist to to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, and then many local churches adopt their own sort of version of that. Um, here at Resurrection, ours is to build a Christian community where non-religious and nominally religious people are becoming deeply committed Christians. And what I think is for most preachers to be able to think about what is the purpose of the church that I'm serving, and then how does my preaching serve that purpose? And as you do that, as you begin thinking about uh, the purpose of the church, the I find the preaching, your preaching as a pastor, is one of the most important things you do to help the church accomplish its purpose or mission. And so for me, when I think about preaching, I'm thinking about how can a sermon, how can my sermons do everything possible to build Christian community, to reach non-religious and nominally religious people, and to help them become deeply committed Christians. And so that drives, you know, that purpose of the church then drives my preaching. Mm. And do you feel that the breadth of the United Methodist mission statement is potentially a good thing, allowing for more specific mission statements like your churches? Or do you think it's maybe part of the reason why we sometimes feel like we're kind of ambling about? Yeah, I don't think it gives a lot of specificity, but I think that's actually a good thing on the denominational level, because that allows local churches to develop their own contextual purpose statement. And I think, you know, as long as somewhere in there is uh, something about making disciples and somewhere in there is something (laughs) about changing the world, you know, you have the ability to adapt and to 
you know, form and shape that for your own local context and community and what your passions are. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the key things is what is a local church's passion? But a local church's passion comes largely from some senior pastor's passion. So it might have been the mm-hmm. founding pastor. It might have been some pastor who was very influential along the way. And if you're in a local congregation for some length of time, you have a chance to begin to shape what that passion looks like. And local churches draw their cues in large part from their from their senior pastors. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if they have an effective senior pastor, you're forming and shaping the sense of passion. And so I think any purpose statement or mission statement, you know, the leaders have to be really passionate about it. They have to say, this matters so much to me that I would give almost anything to see it accomplished. I would give my, I pour my life into it. I would, you know, give my resources to make that happen. And, and that's how I feel about our purpose statement is, you know, I'm, I very much want to build a Christian community, a, a place, not a community of Christians, but a Christian community, a place that's defined by our Christian values that accomplishes the kinds of things Christian communities do together, fellowshipping, sharing with each other, caring for one another, worshiping together, growing together with a clear focus on how are we reaching non-religious and nominally religious people, because that's what Jesus did uh, in his ministry. He came to seek and to save the lost, and that was what John Wesley was primarily focused on, was you know going out and finding those non-religious and nominally religious people, and then ultimately uh, helping those people become deeply committed Christians. And that gives enough, those three categories for our purpose statement give enough latitude to be able to say, okay, so now let's talk about what a deeply committed Christian looks like. And there's a lot of room for unpacking that. And let's talk about who these non-religious and nominally religious people are. And let's talk about what Christian community looks like. And so, you know, while the purpose statement is only three points, there's a whole lot of depth underneath that or a lot of breadth that you yeah. can, you know, pursue ministry and mission preaching in. And you've had this guiding principle throughout your ministry at Resurrection, but I'm curious how you feel that your personal preaching has grown over time. What are some of the differences between the young pastor who started in a funeral home and the pastor that now just uh, opened up an amazing new sanctuary? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I think my preaching certainly has changed over the years, and I hope it's still changing. You know, I feel like I'm learning things, and I'm, you know, my style is different than it was back in the beginning. I sometimes go back and look over those early sermons, and and you know, my back at that time, my sermons were about twenty minutes in length, yeah. and I think they were um, they were passionate, and they had good stories, and they had um, I think pretty decent content, but I don't think they were quite as deep as what they are today, mm. and I think. One of the things that changed over time is I moved from being the 20-minute preacher that I learned in seminary to being a teacher preacher. And so I love to teach. And if I weren't doing this, I might be you know, a seminary professor or something else someplace. I really enjoy the teaching side of things. But of course, people don't only want to listen to teaching. They, they need their hearts warm. They need, uh, you know, they need something that's going to be helpful for their daily life. And, and so in my preaching, it's gotten longer over time, and now I'm working on trying to get it shorter a little bit. <laughs> so uh, my average sermons are somewhere between 30 and 35 minutes, and, uh, and I'm trying to move from the 35-minute mark back. And sometimes it goes as long as 37 to 40 minutes, and that's not good. That's just too long. Even if you can hold their attention, it's just too, too long. But, but 30 to 33 minutes, I find, seems to work pretty well around here. But I'll, I'll mention, you know, one of the things that I do is uh, I think about what are the kinds of sermons I would have to preach in order to accomplish our, per, our church's purpose statement. Mm. And a lot of folks, you know, I've shared this in Florida and any annual conference I've spoken at, but, you know, I think there's five kinds of sermons that I typically try to preach, five sort of buckets in which my sermons fit. You know, the first is evangelism. And, uh, you know, we can call it something else. We talk about these sermons as fishing expeditions because Jesus called his disciples to fish for people. And so I think about what are the sermons that I could preach that when we announce them on Christmas Eve or Easter, when we've got a lot of non-religious and nominally religious people around, they say, wow, I want to go back for that. Or there are sermons that when I share them with the congregation, 
I give them tools and they go, I, I have 10 friends I can think of that would be interested in coming for that. So mm. those are evangelism. The second are discipleship sermons that are really aimed at teaching, you know, taking people deeper. They're aimed at teaching theology, teaching the Bible, Christian spirituality, and helping people become, you know, casting a vision for and helping them become more deeply committed Christians. Then a category of sermons I have are pastoral care sermons, where you just look and recognize so much of Jesus' ministry was about healing broken people. And you have a lot of broken people in your congregation every single week. And you have a lot of folks who are never going to schedule an appointment to see the pastor or go see a counselor. And yet they're hurting or they're in need or they're just facing challenges in their relationships or in their personal life. And so figuring out what kinds of sermons would bring healing to the sheep, what kinds of sermons bind up the wounded, as uh, as Ezekiel says. And get equipping and sending sermons. And so I remember Paul saying, you know, that the uh, job or the role of the pastor teacher was to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry. So I think about what kind of sermons do I need to preach to equip them to share their faith, to equip them to live out a Christian ethic in life and to do Christian ethics on the fly? What kind of sermons do I need to uh, preach and teach to equip them to be Christian leaders, to equip them to be, um, you know, to uh, serve in the community? And then the last category of sermons I look at are just sermons to strengthen the church. How do I, how do I help our congregation to be as healthy as it can be. And so these are vision-casting sermons. These are sermons on how do we do Christian community together? Um, you know, what does it mean to be the church? And so those tend to be the five kind of categories of sermons that I'm preaching from that all tie back into that overarching purpose statement. And do you have a favorite one of the categories, or, or is one of them more of a challenge for you? I don't know that I have a favorite. And, you know, they really overlap a lot. So right now I'm doing a sermon series coming out of Easter uh, called The Birds and the Bees. <laughs> and this series actually... It, it started from my congregational care team, our pastoral care department, who said uh, we are having a, you know, a, a, quite a number of people who are struggling with either sexual addictions or pornography addictions, or we're seeing people who've been um, you know, sexually assaulted or pressured into sex. or There was just a number of these kind of things. It wasn't like there was a huge number of any one of those categories, but enough of them that they said, we think you really ought to talk about this. And I thought, okay, well, I don't want to spend six straight weeks talking about the negative side of sexual, you know, of sexuality, but I do need to talk about those things. So we developed a sermon series that was going to be, um, you know, about uh, both the positive and, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of human sexuality, but not just sexuality, romance and relationships. And, and so every sermon has, has some dimension that deals with uh, both the good and the bad of human sexuality. Uh, but also deal with relationships and other things. So it started as a pastoral care sermon series. Mm. Uh, then it moved into, it, it encompasses Christian ethics. Um, and then uh, it finally is a sermon series that, that we announced on Easter because we recognize a whole lot of people would be interested in how do I strengthen yeah. my relationships? How do I, how do I have more healthy relationships? And so it encompasses three categories, but I would say I, I love doing the, um, the sermon series for, you know, the fishing expeditions. Those are usually intriguing. I really enjoy the teaching series. So like, I, you know, I just have a new book out on Moses and it was a, based on a sermon series I did last fall where I took a film crew to Egypt and we retraced the story of Moses in Egypt, went up to the land of Goshen, went to the, through the pyramids, down to the, you know, what was the capital of Egypt in the time of Moses down at uh, Luxor or what was at the time Thebes. We climbed up Mount Sinai. We went to uh, Jordan. We climbed up Mount Nebo and, and I filmed there, you know, clips for the sermon series and, and for the book and small group study. And so for me, that was just rich because I got to spend some intense time yeah. studying the life of Moses in a way that I never did in seminary. So I spent hundreds of hours reading, researching, studying, you know, in preparation for and during that sermon series. And 
And so those things feed my soul. When I, when I get done preparing a sermon and, and my research leaves me so excited about what I've just learned that I'd never known before, you know, after doing this for 27 years, that, that's always fun too. So uh, really, I'd say I don't have a favorite. I just, I think it's a joy to get to, it's a joy to get to do what we get to do and to be, and to have some clarity around it uh, that gives you focus. And, and uh, so anyway, yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about those, those types of sermon series and studies, because you, you do have the new Moses one out. You also did one on Wesley and did multiple series yep. on Jesus where you went and you filmed. And, and yep. so I was wondering what inspired the, the first one of those trips and then what's been the heart behind it that's kept you going with this particular style. Yeah. So thanks for asking that. I, I uh, went to the Holy Land for the first time about 20 years ago. And on that trip, I was, it was maybe 25 years ago. I was, my wife went with me and there was a group with us and I had an older pastor who was leading it. So I just got to, just got to enjoy it. Yeah. And my wife, you know, we, everywhere we were going, she's like, are you feeling okay? You're just so quiet. I've never seen you so quiet. I'm like, I'm just standing in awe. I mean, I'm, these are all stories that I've learned my whole life, but now to stand in these places and, you know, whether the thing happened here or a hundred yards that direction or a a mile that way, it wasn't so material, but when you're walking down the Mount of Olives or you're crossing the Kidron Valley or you're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, it's, it just opens up a new way of reading the text. And it was so breathtaking for me. And so I've been back multiple times. And and finally the day came, I thought, I think there's a lot of people who will never go over there because they're afraid, Right. but I think they'd love to see these things. And that's where I began incorporating that into my preaching first, and I pitched this idea to, to Abingdon. Uh, again, it's been probably 14 years ago now. I said, I'd like to take a film crew over. I'd like to prepare a sermon series on the... And the first one I did was 24 Hours That Changed the World, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and to take people you know, to the upper room, across the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and all the way the, you know, the Via Dolorosa, and finally where Christ is buried. And they're like, well, we think that yeah, we, that could that could be okay, we think. But they weren't quite sure about how this was going to work. And it, But I just knew people would be really moved by getting to see that. And, and this, you know, there was a huge response to that. And that led me back to go do um, uh, the journey, which was this, the journey from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem and the Advent story. Right. And so I walked part of that journey, took people to places they would see it. And then I did one called The Way, which was the whole life of Jesus. And uh, and I began to feel the sense of call, like, this is something I enjoy doing, and I feel like it's, you know, it's something people small groups would enjoy. And my small group stuff is really aimed at helping churches be more vital. So I want to help the people who use my small groups, uh, my small group materials to, um, you know, to grow in their faith and be excited. But I'm also hoping, hey, maybe a church would do this as a churchwide study with their children, youth, and adults, and the congregation would grow together. And so anyway, I found that's really happened. And so I feel this sense of, you know, probably through the end of my ministry, every other year I envision releasing a book like this or doing something like this. So we did Jesus first, then uh, then I did uh, the life of uh, Paul in, a, in something called The Call, and, and we retraced Paul's life, uh, and in particular, second and third missionary journeys through Turkey. And so we romped across central Turkey and, and then into uh, Greece and finally to Italy where he died. And then I thought, well, you know, this would be fun for Methodists to, to yeah. learn John Wesley's story by going to where you know, where he was. And so we went to England and retraced the, the story of Wesley and his life. And, and then most recently Moses. And next year I'm going with a rabbi and we are going to um, film together uh, a study of King David. Oh, wow. And we're going to go out to places, you know, in the biblical lands that many people don't ever go. And, uh, and I'll have him sharing with me a rabbi's perspective on David's life. And 
And someday I'd like to get over to, to Iraq and do Abraham and um, kind of a passion and a sense of calling I have to, to do those kind of things. Yeah, well, and, and each one has looked better and better. The cameras have gotten better. So maybe uh, maybe the next one or the one after that you can do in VR and then we can really feel like we're there. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. And it is funny, you know, you learn stuff when you're doing this. And I would say, you know, for any pastors listening to your podcast, you know, to have a chance to go over, you, you don't have to have a major film crew if you've got an iPhone. Right. Exactly. You can do you can do this, and um, but we you know we certainly have learned a lot, especially in filming the small group videos because, like in the case of Moses, you know I'm going over there and I've never been to these places myself, and so you can't really script out what you're going to say when you're there because you don't know what you're going to see, you don't know how it's going to pull together, and you've got guides, and sometimes they're giving you accurate information, sometimes not, and, <laughs> and you know so I've studied everything I can when I get there, but at the same and and you know you end up. Uh, sometimes a segment will be you're filming something 200 miles away from something else and you're trying to figure out how do these things go together and I don't even know how this is going to fit together so we film it all and, and I'm saying stuff on camera that I think is important but I have no idea whether it will be used or won't use and how it fits together and, and then the editing process is, is where it you know, yeah. finally comes together and we have to do some studio shots to try to sew it all together but it's, uh, it's, it's really been a rich experience to get to to get to go to these places. That's great. Well, you've done lots of work with up-and-coming pastors. Your church has hosted the Young Preachers Festival before, and I was wondering if you had any observations on young preachers today. Are, are there any um, primary strengths or growth areas you see common in this new generation of preachers coming up? Well, I, I don't know that I can answer that because I don't get to hear a lot of them preaching. I, I can tell you that I feel really excited about the future of the church when I look at the young clergy and I, and I have a chance to spend time with them. So Mike Slaughter and I started a thing a few years ago um, in which we were uh, the Young Clergy Network, in which we were starting to mentor, and, and we've been through, I think, three classes of 50 each over the last six years. And, you know, we spend, uh, you know, three days at, at uh, Ginghamsburg, three days here, and that's been really rich. And I come away from each one of those, and, and those are where the bishops have to nominate the young clergy. And I come away from those, or the Young Preachers Festival, and I'm like, Wow, I feel really excited about the future of the church because we've got some very gifted people, um, you know, who are who are coming through, and they're discovering their own voices and their own ways of preaching and teaching and doing things. And I think that's, you know, I think the worst thing you can do is to try to think, well, I want to become, I want to take somebody else's style. I think right. you learn everything you can from them, but you got to figure out your own voice. And and uh, but I think you can learn from what does. And this is what I appreciate about your blog and your and you're, uh, you know, what you're doing on podcasts like this is we've got to learn how to practice our craft. Having one or two classes in seminary right. is grossly inadequate to being an effective preacher. You've, you know, and, and I, I find it sad and tragic. You know, you wouldn't have a heart surgeon who had, who said, oh yeah, I have one class on heart <laughs> right. surgery and think that they were going to be a good heart surgeon. But we give people one class in preaching and it's the most important thing they're going to do aside from tending their own spiritual lives and taking care of their families for the health of the church is to preach effective sermons. And we've given them one or two classes on this. And often from that, you know, a lot of the seminary professors are really excellent and they're great in, in the craft that they have, but it's different sometimes when you're doing this week after week after week, than when you are doing, you know, you've, you've preaching a handful of times sometimes and, and you can do kind of a great theoretical piece, but it's, it's different. And I'm not saying that's true for most of the preaching professors. I'm just saying there's a, there's more to this, when you're doing it week after week, year after year, that um, that you've got to pick up, and so yeah, I think it's important that people are constantly learning. 
Well, uh, another set of guests on our show are two members of your staff, Chris Abel and Chris Falmsby. And uh, Chris Abel told me to ask you about how you handle mistakes, technical difficulties, and even medical emergencies. He says that you are just a master at handling those bumps <laughs> in the road, that you've got lots of funny stories. And so I was wondering if you had any uh, advice for handling these sort of unexpected moments, technical difficulties, or if you had any particularly funny stories. Well, I'll share with you a few. They they weren't funny at the time, but they're they're a little <laughs> more humorous afterwards. But uh, so I'll give you just a, just a few examples. Once uh, I was preaching, and somebody, one of the teenagers, pulled the fire alarm in church, mm. and it was you know right at the beginning of the sermon, and it's like okay, this is really you know, I, <laughs> yeah, and I I figured out pretty quickly it was not a, an authentic alarm, but but you, you don't know for sure, and the fire department showing up, and so we all went outside, and it was temperature was about forty five degrees outside. And I said, okay, I want you all to you know, gather out if you're willing to. This will be something you'll never forget. Uh, I'm going to finish preaching the sermon from the steps of the, of the church. So join me out there. I'm going to shorten the sermon a bit, but go ahead and join me out there. And then after that, we'll take the offering. So, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we had the ushers brought the offering plates. I stood out there on the steps, and, and, you know, but I had to convince them, okay, don't right. leave, because you're going to talk about this years from now. And, uh, and so they did. They all stayed around. And we, you know, I stood on the front steps, and I shouted as loud as I could. And, and uh, you know, just last week, and the the we moved to the new sanctuary and the sound system went out at the 7:30 service in the morning. <laughs> of course, and so it was working for the first bit, and we know there had been some problems. And I told, I kept saying, guys, have a backup ready, have a backup ready. But they weren't quite ready. They kind of had an idea what they were going to do, but it wasn't quite ready. And yeah. sure enough, it went out. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the sermon, like five minutes in, and so fortunately, the room you know has enough. Uh, you know, it worked well enough that I could just shout for five minutes until they got a backup system hooked up, and we were okay. But uh, I think about a guy who walked down the aisle one Easter, and the, the sanctuary was jam packed, and we had a uh, guy walk down the aisle, and it was clear he was not mentally well. Mm. And we have a security team, you know, who's around in case something happens. You know, the larger your church gets, the more high profile, the more right. possibilities there are that somebody could do something. And the security team's about ensuring the safety of our congregation. And uh, and he walked in, and I but I finally just stopped the sermon. I mean, he's like standing there, walking down the aisle, and you can tell everybody's uncomfortable. Like, who is this guy, and what's he about to do? And I finally just stopped and said, uh, hey, can I help you? Is there anything that you need? You know, <laughs> And uh, pretty soon one of his family members came and got him and took him back to, you know, back to wherever they were seated. But he yeah. was confused. He'd come in from the bathroom, and he, and he had no idea really where he was. Um, had, a, had several times where there had been uh, either heart attacks or, you know, medical emergencies in the middle of the sermon. And I always stop and I just say, because, you know, you can't miss it somewhere right, in the room. Right. You know, there's a big flurry of activity. And, uh, and I just stop and I say, folks, there's clearly one of our brothers or sisters has a medical emergency right now. I'm asking one of our pastors to go back there and be with them and pray with them right now. We've got the emergency response team that's on their way. And I said, I know from experience when uh, others have had this happen that they've said they were they didn't want to disrupt the service and they've asked you know they've just said please keep going with the service don't stop it so I said I know this is going to be really hard but for them so that they don't feel like they've been you know they've been disruptive mm. I'd like for you we're all going to stretch out our hands towards that person we're going to pray uh, for God to bring healing and take care of them and then I'm going to ask you just to try your hardest to focus your attention here I'm going to keep trying to preach just like I would have otherwise and we're going to let the medical professional take care of that person and that. You know, afterwards, because most of the time it's like somebody didn't have enough. You know, they have they had low blood sugar right, or something, right. and they just passed out. It was. It's usually not a major emergency. It's usually not a heart attack, but it. Um, but that allows people to know you've stopped, you've acknowledged it, you've prayed for it, you've, uh, and then you can draw everybody back to you know back to square one. But it's also a little unnerving. You gotta 
you got to figure out, okay, yeah, how do I now get my head back in the game? <laughs> right. But, uh, but you know, and, uh, two weeks ago, because the sanctuary is new and we've had some problems, I had uh, at 11 o'clock the video system went out. And so I had two videos in the sermon. So you're figuring out, well, yeah. first of all, you know, we, we scratched one of the hymns because we don't have hymnals in the seats anymore. <laughs> and so we said, okay, let's only sing this one hymn that people will maybe know. We'll scrap the other one. We'll, you know, and so we rearranged the service pretty quickly. But when it came to the sermon, it was like, okay, we don't, ha- I don't have the graphics and I don't have the video, but fortunately the sermon, you know, I could preach it without that. And I always think that's a good thing too, that your video elements are additive, but they're not yes, essential. Like, yeah. if, you know, they'll, they clearly will make a difference, but if you don't have them, you still got a sermon to preach. And sometimes I find people where it was clear that the greatest thing that, you know, that the, that, that the thing that the pastor was counting on was having this moving video clip that would make people cry, but there was little substance mm. other than that yeah. three-minute video clip they were going to show. And our aim was to make sure that, and enough illustrations without the video clips, that the video clips are additive and not not essential. Those are just a few examples. You know, we've had lots of others, but uh, I I grew up uh, ushering Christmas Eve, and we, you know we did the candle lighting, and we always had a bucket of damp towels. They said some of these people wear so much hairspray that you just never know <laughs> if anyone's going to go up. Uh, we thankfully never exactly. had to use them, but you got to be ready. Yep, absolutely. And a couple of things. One, a couple of the things I was going to mention to you, and for your listeners, um, one is the the two different approaches that you can take to preaching. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of times in seminary we're taught, uh, and many of us were taught the lectionary to preach the lectionary and, uh, and that's fine. I think the lectionary can work great, especially for certain seasons, but I really encourage people to move away from preaching lectionary all the time, figure out the kind of sermon series that you need to preach to address some of those things we talked about in those five different buckets. But the other thing is that preaching can start with the text and you exegete the text, and then you apply it to daily life, and you illustrate it. That's one fine way to preach. The challenge today is that for a lot of people, they're not really, especially if you're reaching non-religious people, they're not really sure why they want to come and hear you talk for 20 or 30 minutes about a book that was written a long time ago that has stuff in it that they're aware of that they that they not they're not that fond of. You know, whether mm. it's uh, you know the violence uh, attributed to God in the Scripture or texts about you know, gender and relationships, or there are things that people know about in the text who never read the Bible. They're non-religious people, and they don't know that that's a minor chord, but, um, but there are people wondering, why do I want to hear about that? Your committed Christians might be very excited about that, but the non-religious, not so much. Right. And if you look at how Jesus preached, he actually started in a different place. So instead of starting with the biblical text, most often Jesus started with the human condition. And he exegeted that, and then he applied the word to that. And of course, whatever he was saying became the word. Right. But uh, and then he illustrated that. And so, so I think, and so the one form of preaching when we start with the Bible starts with the answer, and then it searches for the question that, to which that is an answer, versus starting with the question, and then moving to the answer and finding the answer in the biblical text. And so both of those are good biblical preaching. When I when I do a series of sermons on Moses, I'm starting with the text. And then I'm looking to see what what is the question this text is answering? What is it teaching me about life? But but when I start with like the series on the birds and the bees, I'm starting with this is where we live, and these are the relationships we struggle with, and this is what real life is like. And uh, and now, how does the biblical text speak to that? And I find that that's often a more compelling way to preach um, that engages 
you know, non-religious people as well as your committed folks. So every other sermon series, I start with the text. Every other sermon series, I start with, start with the question or the human condition. And the other thing I, I try to remind people of is, you know, I have three kind of aims in my preaching that tie back into the purpose of the church. And uh, so every sermon, I'm going to try to teach people something they didn't know before. And in order to do that, I've got to learn two or three things if I'm going to teach them just one thing, because different right. people are going to learn different things. I use, an, I use an iPad with maps and charts and all kinds of stuff, you know, on the video screen so I can be teaching them things. And there, there, there are a variety of things you can teach them. Sometimes it's just facts, you know, sometimes it's statistics or whatever. But teaching people things they didn't know before, the second is to inspire them, that is to touch their heart. And the last thing is to call them to action. Hmm. And those three are the head, the heart, and the hands. And that's three of the four H's in the old 4-H club. And so right. I find that's, that's one way that people find themselves engaged. And if you can speak to the head, the heart, and the hands, or even just two of those three on any given weekend, people will walk away saying, I got something out of church. Uh, I, I want to tell my friends what I got out of it, and I want to come back again next week. Well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests as we're wrapping up. The first one is, uh, what's one of your uh, favorite or most challenging preaching experiences? Well, uh, I would say... I'll give you a couple answers. First of all, Easter is always both my favorite and most challenging Easter, uh, or most challenging preaching experience, one at the, one and the same. And I would say right around that is candlelight Christmas Eve. And in both of those, you realize that half the people, maybe two-thirds of the people, only show up for Christmas and Easter. I remember one guy saying, uh, you know, the thing that I don't, uh, one of my folks who only shows up at Christmas and Easter had complained to his wife, you know, every time I go to church, Adam's preaching the same thing. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, if you show up at Easter and Christmas, every time I'm going to be preaching the same thing. And, uh, and so, um, you know, you, you feel the weight of that. You've got stories at Easter and Christmas that are our most difficult stories to believe. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've got Jesus walks out of the tomb and, uh, and, and, Christmas, you've got, you know, God is born and the angels are there singing. And, you know, and most of us don't have those kind of experiences with angel choirs singing or, uh, you know, and so there's some powerful things about the Christmas story, but there's some that seem kind of unbelievable. And Easter seems even more so. And then you've got, you know, the same story year after year, but what's your new take going to be? And after 27 years of preaching Easter, you know, you, uh, you realize, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to come up with some new amazing thing that nobody's ever thought of to yeah. say about Easter. What I've got to do is come up with some really great way of helping people see what this actually looks like lived in somebody's life. Mm. And so like this year at Easter, you know, one of the things I did is one of our, uh, one of our new couples or new members of our church from the last year, uh, he's in his 30s and he's uh, dying of cancer, actively dying of cancer right mm. now. And so I went to sit with him and uh, asked if I could have a, I actually sat with him first and then I asked if I could come back the next day and interview him. And, uh, you know, we sat down with a video crew and I said, let's talk about how you're facing death and what Easter means to you now. And it ended up, you know, it was a very powerful, compelling story that was deeply moving to people. Even though they'd heard the story of Easter many times, there was something new that came to it. And so I find Easter, we desperately need Easter every year. Mm. And um, and it's funny, I end my Easter sermon the same way every year, too. So every year at Easter, my sermon is exactly the same, 27 years in a row. And, and what's funny is people, if I, if I miss it, if I forgot to say it, they'd be really upset because they're <laughs> counting on me yeah, saying yeah. that thing. And so my Easter sermon ends every year. You know, people ask me, and this, this truly happens every year, Some, you know, somebody will ask me, you don't really believe this stuff, do you? I mean, Jesus, you're a smart guy. You really believe Jesus walked out of the tomb? He really rose from the dead? Come on, you're too smart for that. And, uh, and my answer to them every year is the same. I not only believe it, I'm counting on it. Yeah. 
And when I say it now, you can see everybody's lips moving with me. But it, it uh, for new people, it still impacts them. But for old people, I've had people, you know, said, I've been a part of the church 20 years. I long for you to say that every year. I need you to say that every year. And so it's it's interesting, you know, even though this is something you say year after year after year, it's still, maybe sometimes because you've said it year after year, it becomes important. And I envision the day when I preach my last Easter sermon here, having served here for 40 40 plus years mm. and, um, and what it'll feel like to say that for the last time, you know, as their pastor. Yeah. I wonder if you'll be able to get through it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I will. I, I get choked up sitting here talking to you about it right now. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, and I, and I know I, I, I followed, um, your church through the years and I know after the shooting in town, um, a couple years ago at the, at the Jewish center, yeah. uh, that involved some yeah. of, uh, the deaths of some of your members. I, I know that you used that phrase and that truth for your congregation during that season. Um, and yeah. so laying a foundation like that, it, it doesn't have to be that for us, but if we have this thing that we as pastors are really passionate about, we should maybe not be afraid to lay it as this foundation year after year, because then we can apply it in other areas. That's exactly right. I think that's right. Well, our last main question for you, are there any uh, impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators or books or or really any resources that you might recommend for our audience to check out? You know, there's a ton of of those kind of resources out there, and I'm always hard-pressed to say, well, you know, who's your favorite preacher or whatever. There are preachers like Harry Emerson Fosdick, but he was back in the first half of the 20th century, who was one of the most influential preachers in my life. And I never heard him preach a sermon. I only read his sermons. But I, I love reading some of the old preachers. Uh, uh, James Stewart was another one from Scotland. Uh, those tend to be the guys that I listen to. I, I, I hardly ever listen to other people's preaching today. I read a lot of preaching. And I need to listen to more of it. And I would grow more by doing that. But I, uh, every once in a while, I'll, I'll go out and I'll search, you know, search out somebody to see what they said or how they approach things. But I, I need to do more of it. Um, I'm going to mention one little book that I wrote. Uh, it's a pretty inexpensive little book, but I think it could be helpful for some of your folks. And it's called Speaking Well. Hmm. Uh, Speaking Well, Essential Skills for Speakers, Leaders, and Preachers. And this is just a, it's like a, it's such a tiny little book, and it's got 19 short little chapters on, here's some nuts and bolts stuff that I find would be helpful. And I wrote it for preachers, but also for business people or anybody who has to speak in public. And so they're just some nuts and bolts things that I think sometimes either trip people up or can help people be more effective. And then some, probably 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I wrote a book called Unleashing the Word. And I still find there's a lot of good stuff in that in that book. It's still in print and it's, uh, it's used in some seminaries and courses studies. And so those would be a couple things. Uh, you know, I, I think beyond that, I, I don't have a lot of great recommendations, uh, right now. And, and I'll tell you this, I don't consider myself a great preacher. I work my, I work really hard today. You're catching me on my sermon writing day and yeah. I spend 20 hours a week working on my sermons. And I find I, uh, you know, every week I still feel nervous before I get up to preach. Mm. And I don't consider myself an, you know, an awesome preacher, but I think I work really hard hmm. at trying to make sure that I have something to say that I believe God wants me to say, that I am, feel fairly confident will speak to where people are and will apply or bring to life the scriptures in a way that touches them, teaches them, and inspires them to action. And I think that's, you know, my hope is that that's true for, for all of us who are trying to do this task of preaching. Yeah. Well, I, I always think that if, if you feel a little bit nervous ahead of time, that's how you know you're still taking it seriously. So it's pretty great yeah, after that true. long uh, to still feel that. And so uh, if our listeners want to reach out and say hi, or if they want to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. Well, Facebook is probably my best, uh, the best way to, for people to connect. Pastor Adam Hamilton 
So I have a personal page, which I don't accept followers on because it's connected to just my kids, and I don't even post anything on it, just so I can see their pictures. But Pastor Adam Hamilton is an organizational page, and if they like it, they can also send me private messages there. Um, and I love to do that, and I, and I draw from that a lot for my sermons as well. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, at, at Rev Adam Hamilton. And I have a blog in which people can find out more about Moses in the Moses series. I'm putting, posting blogs on that right now. And that's at um, adamhamilton.org. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Pastor Adam. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was great to be with you. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.